Welcome back to Let's Talk University. Maria here, and joining me today, Jas and Louise, will be discussing uh, episode, well, this is episode two of our second series. Wow, two twos. Um, and we'll be discussing the <laughs> present today. Uh, so this series is all about applications, as you have seen from the first uh, episode of the series. So now we're going to talk about how these applications kind of show up during our undergrad experience. Um, so we have three main topics that we want to use to guide our conversation. And we wanted to, first of all, highlight, highlight sorry, the recurring theme about, you know, what it's like to have a formal application uh, versus, you know, something like an informal application. And alongside, we also wanted to highlight some of the important uh, kind of prerequisites or just like items that you might need for these kinds of applications. Now um, that you are an undergrad, you might need like something like a resume, you know, like we all think of like, oh, what's a resume? Like, how do you get one of those? Um, so that's like important parts of your application that are really relevant to um, these applications that you'll be facing later on. But yeah, okay, without further ado, I want to start with the academics. So I think one of the biggest parts of, you know, the undergrad experience is kind of like, you know, studying abroad or studying away. And I think like it definitely marked my experience. I was lucky enough to study abroad, even though it was for two short months in Madrid earlier this year. Um, and that's like something that will have to happen because or that happened because of like an application. I guess. Um, and I know Jason too. Jason, if you're here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my study abroad process was unfortunately cut short due to COVID. Um, cut a little shorter than yours. Um, so I actually <laughs> didn't get to study abroad. I was mid-application process. Um, so the application process is still extremely fresh in my mind as I was supposed to study abroad this past summer and I was also supposed to go to Spain and I remember like coming into my undergrad I was so determined to study abroad but I kept putting it off thinking that study abroad was like an application process that was like extremely hard to navigate for me as a first generation student like low income it was just really daunting so I put off like my study abroad dreams for a really long time and then once I actually got to doing the application, I realized how much easier it was than I had anticipated. I think I just like hyped it up way too much in my head. So it was like a <laughs> lot scarier than it actually was. Um, I actually remember filling it out in my 8 a.m. on like a Thursday or something. And it literally <laughs> took me like 15 minutes. I mean, I probably should have been paying attention to my class or my lecture but that just shows like besides the point besides the point that just shows like how easy the application process actually was um at least for me I since I go to UCR um we have a few different study abroad programs that are offered so we have like UCEAP which is like the program across all the UCs so like mm -hmm. if let's say Luis who goes to Berkeley like he could he and I could go on a study abroad trip like at the same time because we're under like the UC system. Um, but that's not what I was actually doing. I was doing something called the FLEEP program. 
And that's like a faculty-led education abroad program. So essentially what it was, it was like this professor and she had like a set of research that like she was going to go do in Spain and she brings along students with her. Um, So my application process, aside from like the actual paperwork kind of stuff being a little easy, um, I know I had to meet with her um, because Mm -hmm. my program specifically required that we spoke Spanish. So I had to go in person with her and she was just like, all right, like, start speaking. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, my process was fairly easy. Like, it was a lot easier than I thought. And I wish I really, really wish I hadn't put it off for so much time, because who knows, maybe I could have studied abroad before, like, coronavirus happened. Oh, no. What ifs? (laughs) Bro, I know. It's a little sad, but it's okay. There's always there's always op- other opportunities and like I guess my best advice is don't hesitate like don't hesitate to do what it is that you want to do just because you think that an application process might be hard because it might be a lot easier than you anticipate. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, thank you Jasmine. I think you touched on some of the things that are like important as we're talking about, you know, the applications, but even before you think about like the actual application, it's like well, you have to browse for the programs, right, that mm-hmm. you're interested in. And you have to think about, like, oh, does this make sense for me to study abroad? I think myself, like, as I mentioned before, I'm studying, I'm a double major in physics and Hispanic studies. And, you know, sometimes, like, study abroad for STEM majors can be a little bit more complicated. And I wanted to really find a program that kind of, like, fit my, like, wants for the academic intellectual endeavors that I was looking for Mm -hmm. so I ended up actually like applying for a program that allowed me to take like classes in Spanish but also to directly enroll into a local university so that I could take like a physics class in Spanish and that was like really really interesting Um, and also like it widens your scope you really get a chance to think about like you know international views as to like what education is like And the true, like, immersive experience of um, working through that. But, yeah, another thing that you also mentioned, Jasmine, that I think would be really, that is really important is, like, how do you fund your studies abroad? I think, like, that in itself is, like, a different sort of application. You know, it's, like, not only do you have to apply to these kinds of programs, but you also have to apply for maybe, like, funding, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, through scholarships, through Uh, maybe like special funds from your school or um, other kinds of funds. I know, um, I don't know if you you mentioned that you weren't able to get to this part of the process or. Yeah, I remember. So I was still like planning to study abroad and like, I mean, coronavirus news had started to hit, but like my, the professor was like, no, no, we're for sure going. Like, it's not it's not anything like big yet, like, don't worry about it. So I started looking into how to fund. I know, look how it turned out. (laughs) Anyways, um, I started to look into like how to fund my study abroad trip. And I remember like, just thinking like, wow, this is really overwhelming. Like, how am I going to afford this? Um, Until I realized that sometimes like studying abroad could be cheaper than like studying at your actual like university. Um, that is true yeah like it heavily depends where you're going so um, I'm not too sure like what the funding for my program would have looked like but I know at UCR we have um, study abroad specific scholarships for students and given that we're like one of the like UCs with the lowest rate of students that study abroad that means like there's 
I guess, more opportunity for, um, for funding. So I was starting to look into that. There's, you know, those private scholarships. So there's scholarships um, I know that are like outside of your like school specific programs and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I didn't get that far. I know, Maria, didn't you kind of get one of those big scholarships? <laughs> yeah, actually I did. Um, I applied and received a Gilman scholarship. It's like the, um, it's a, a scholarship funded by the Department of State that like focuses on underrepresented backgrounds, you know, studying abroad. And that was like something really, really exciting for me to get, you know, I got like a, an award and now part of like this network and everything you know it's pretty neat i recommend everyone (laughs) subtle flex (laughs) subtle flex you know me starting my hair um but yeah it's actually and it was a little bit intense and i think like when you think about applications this is one of those that you know if you're applying for something that can be a little bit more um hard to get you know there's definitely there was a definitely a bigger process than for something like my actual study abroad program like what Jasmine said was very true you know it's really easy a lot of schools have partnerships with study abroad programs where you're like basically guaranteed to get in if you have like you know a certain GPA you're a certain major you know but then there are other more challenging um, scholarships or you know applications that you might have to write like an essay like I had to write a couple of essays for this one And I also had to, like, make a plan of, um, like, an event that I wanted to host to kind of, like, promote students going abroad, you know. And that's, like, you know, a little bit more intense, I guess. Yeah, a little more work. Yeah. Um, But it's always, like, you know, it comes down to a lot of people reading your personal statement and, you know, telling you, like, oh, change this. Like, oh, you should not say that. Like, oh, no, this is good. Like, oh, this is a cruel idea. Um, But, yeah, so that's some fun stuff. Oh, but before we we continue with the journey, I also wanted to highlight one important thing. I know like Jasmine and I mentioned that we were both trying to study abroad, you know, like actually abroad, but there are also a lot of opportunities to study like off campus. So not only, not necessarily, you know, outside of the US, but I know like for a lot of our listeners, maybe like that's not really a possibility, you know, documented students or documented students or just maybe people that didn't find a program that they wanted to do abroad um like there are a lot of uh exchange programs within u.s institutions that you know i would highly encourage you to look into i know there's like some you know again like schools that have partnerships with other schools where you can just kind of like study off campus and you know you still get the experience of being in a completely different place and you know learning something different than you would have if you had stayed in your home institution but at the same time you know you're, you do something fun, something different. Um, yeah, those are definitely really cool. I have a friend who was also supposed to do a, like an exchange program. It was something that the UCs do. It's called UCDC. And that like um, UC students have the opportunity to go to like DC and study over there and like do an internship and all this like really cool stuff. Or like, uh, I think the other one is like UC Sacramento or something like that. So it's like really related to like kind of poli-sci humanities kind of things. Um, But there's definitely like opportunities to go off campus and still have that experience away from like your home school and stuff. So it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And like, 
you know, it's, it's really cool when you think about just these opportunities to study what you want or finding programs that really cater to you and stuff like that. And like a lot of that happens a lot closer to the university than you think, right? Like I know we right. think about finding programs abroad or off campus and things like that, but sometimes it's just about like maybe exploring other majors. And this is kind of like another application process that kind of happens like you know, throughout your undergrad, if you, if you want to, right, like, it's not necessarily like, a requirement <laughs> or anything, but like, everyone should double major and minor and triple minor <laughs> or something. <laughs> Bro, honestly, like you're paying, you're paying Bank how much? Your buck. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think the application process for double majoring, at least for me, since I am a SOCH and education double major, it, um, was just like a little like paperwork-ish process and a little back and forth between different departments and different advisors. But essentially what I did is like, so I came in as a social major and then I was just like, okay, I need something more, something's missing, right? So I found the Mm -hmm. education major and it was just about going back and forth with like my advisors, the advisor of the education department, and then just getting some paperwork signed, having the dean of the two different colleges, like signing it, signing it off and things like that. So it wasn't so much of a application process where I needed to submit a resume or write an essay. It was more so that like, like a petition, I guess, like just petitioning that I want to add another major and that I will be fulfilling this in order to get like my second degree or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's about the same for a minor. I'm not too sure. Um, I know, Maria, you you also have a double major. I guess for me, I'm, like, still in, like, the humanities realm. But yours, like, crosses two different fields completely. Like, how does that look? That is true. Yeah. Well, I think I'm also – well, I go to a liberal arts college. So I guess I definitely – I vibe with the idea of the lib arts, you know, being (laughs) – taking classes that are just so – far different but then you find like these intersections that are pretty neat which is what I like but anyways I I genuinely well Bowdoin doesn't require you to uh, declare a major until you're a sophomore like a second semester sophomore so you still get like a good chance to do what they like want you to do which is explore different fields and like you said it was like kind of like an anti-climatic process like you think like declaring a major is like oh this great part where you like oh like I'm now part of the physics department you know but it was just like oh you fill out the form you chat you select like what major you want and it's all like online right and mm-hmm. then you like sign it you select your advisor and then my advisor was like my pre-major advisor and then it was just like the same person and then you're like yay I'm a major now <laughs> When I was declaring, the most eventful thing that happened was that I got a sticker at the end of my meeting with my advisor. And that's it. You got a sticker? What? (laughs) I do have to say we have some pretty cool swag. Like, Bowdoin Physics Department, like, the different different departments can choose to, like, make, like, gear and be sold at the bookstore. But, like, the physics hats, like, have, like, a little rocket. And they're, like, Mm. so cute. And I love that hat. So... Yeah, I do. I do vibe with the swag. <laughs> but again, anticlimactic process, very bureaucratic. You just fill out a and submit a form. Yeah, I I wish I wish I got a sticker. That sounds kind of <laughs> cool. <laughs> but I mean, again, double majoring is not for everyone, right? It's just a matter of like, if you want to do it, it's also not a necessity. Um, 
you know, there's other ways to kind of get this like experience that you're looking for, whether it's in a classroom um, or in a whole nother country. Right. But (laughs) aside from those two things, like there's other ways to get involved. And one of those ways is research. Um, I personally have never really been involved with research. So let's just kind of hand this over to Louise. I feel like you're a little bit more qualified to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I can talk a little bit about that. Um, So my entry into research was a little bit uh, non-traditional in the sense that I didn't uh, have my first uh, internship uh, through a official summer program or some other program through my university. Um, But with that being said, there is a ton of research programs that uh, you can apply to regardless of your major. Um, It's not just limited to to STEM fields. People can do research uh, in English, in literature, um, in sociology, psychology, like um, a lot of different fields because at its core research is just uh, trying to answer a question that you have uh, using the scientific method and uh, taking new investigative approaches to try to build new knowledge from uh, what already exists. And so when you put it that way, you can do research on literally anything. Um, and so that's the great thing about it, um, that anyone can do it. But also, if you're someone who is considering potentially going to grad school after you graduate, um, it can give you a really great sense or a, a really good idea of whether that's something that you uh, will actually like doing because um, grad school is, is a lot uh is a lot of time and you want to make sure that you're you're doing it because you like it and not because you feel like that's the next step um, and so getting some research experience allows you to figure uh, figure that out and and uh, figure out whether it's something that you actually enjoy doing or you just like the idea of it um, and so that's why I think it, they're really great um, experiences uh, to apply it to um, every single program will have uh, their unique application process, um, unique applications, uh, unique requirements and prerequisites. But um, across the board, you will generally have to put together some sort of resume or CV, um, sort of talk about yourself, your uh, prior experiences, maybe do interviews, um, and maybe explain why you're interested in the field that you're interested in. And so kind of keep those things in mind um, because that's kind of... Uh, the universal sort of requirements that might uh, be asked of you uh, if you're applying to some sort of research program. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because like, I feel like I personally have had an internship before and it was um, doing school visits. Mm -hmm. And so I've always known that like, I want to go into the education field and like, you know, um, go into like the school counseling Mm -hmm. route, right? But I had never really had like the behind the scenes kind of work where I'm like sending emails and facilitating like um, like setting up meetings to do like school visits and things like that. So it allowed me to really have that hands on experience um, before entering like the completely like professional field and things like that. And what it let me know is like what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what do I like, what do I absolutely never want to do again? And Um, I think that's like a recurring theme when we're thinking about like getting involved and things like that. And, you know, oftentimes, like when we're talking about paid positions versus unpaid, like, you know, 
money's money. We need money sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So essentially, like, you just want to make sure that whatever you're getting yourself into, you're getting a lot out of it. You know, it's it's worth your time. It's worth your investment. It's worth your effort. And I mean, for me personally, um, you know, I needed to fund my education and things like that. But my internship was not paid. And this is something that I really like had to strongly consider. But the way I looked at it was like, I'm getting really valuable experience um, through this internship that I'm not sure I have the means to find elsewhere right now. And I mean, it ended up going really well because my internship later turned into a job. And, you know, I know I secured (laughs) the bag. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like a lot of the times, like, some of these experiences could essentially lead to bigger things. And that's where networking is really important, right? Like you can network in research, you can network in your internships, in your abroad programs, in your off-campus programs, all of that. And, you know, um, so yeah, I got really lucky in my internship to, turned into a job, um, a part-time job on campus. And this is when, you know, you really got to think about, um what is the application process like for a job and for being a working student? And I think essentially like the way to approach maybe getting a job or looking for a job is just being really strategic um, about immersing yourself into work environments that are going to be related to your like anticipated career. Right. So for me, yeah, it's really key, right? Like you need money, but you also need experience. So why not just do both at the same time? Um, (laughs) (laughs) exactly and I mean I know the struggle of just needing a job like right now right like I I remember being a first year and I was in my third quarter and I was like okay well I really need money now so like like I just need a job um so I actually ended up working for dining for about a year but I remember like um meeting a lot of older students through my dining job and you know, they would tell me, oh, I worked here all four years. And like, I was just like, whoa, like all four years, like, you know, no shade to like to my homies that worked in dining. But like, I told myself, like, I can't get stuck here. I need to use my time to really find something that is going to relate to my professional goals. So I let myself work there for about a year because I needed the money. But I also made an effort to make sure I didn't get stuck there, to make sure that I was strategic about getting a job that was related to what I wanted to do eventually. And I think that's the best advice that I can give anyone is like, do what you got to do for the moment, but let it be temporary, like explore other things. Like that's how you're going to find out like whether or not you want to do something. Right. So I guess it's really important to like, think about those things and like, think about like, how much do you need to work? Do you need to work? And if you're a first year, I would highly suggest that if you have the means to do so, maybe don't work like your first semester, your first quarter, so you can dedicate it to like transitioning to college. Just because I know my transition from like semester to quarter system was like hella rough. So, you know, it's just about balance and just figuring out what works for you. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. But That's I guess, a key. yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I guess like, but in terms to the application process, like it's important to think about like work study versus non-work study, right? Like what is that, um, what does it entail and stuff like that? I personally didn't have a work study job. Um, Did any of y'all have a work study job? 
Yeah, so I've had three work-study positions uh, to this day. The first one started my sophomore year at the, at the library. I was folding boxes and packaging uh, fragile books or books that needed to be um, sort of protected because they were uh, antique or from special collections. Then my junior year, I was working as a chemistry tutor. And I was also working at at, uh, at my lab doing research. And both of those were work-study positions. And then, um, well, once COVID happened, I couldn't go into the lab anymore. But yeah, I've, I've had uh, my fair share of, of work-study uh, experiences. Yeah, uh, similar to Louise, like, I mean, right now I'm working as like a learning assistant, uh, TA assistant, teacher assistant um, for like physics and Spanish classes. Um, so what Jasmine was saying before is like, I think one of my bigger goals is going to be like, you know, some sort of mentorship program, but also kind of I, my love and my passion for physics. So I love teaching physics to other students and making, you know, physics a more fun subject. So I definitely enjoy my time. Like I get paid to do what I love, you know, like yeah. that is like the best kind of way to go about it. And also just like finding other jobs. Um, I know Louise mentioned like working for the library and whatnot is like find jobs that are just like desk jobs or something so that you essentially like the biggest finesse is like to get paid to do your homework. You know, like you're a student, <laughs> you're like working like your your biggest priority should be your like studies of course but it's like if you're sitting on a desk and like you have nothing else to do like you might as well get those readings done you know like get paid again to study like I know right now in undergrad we're paying to study but like take some of that money back I don't know you know <laughs> it's like almost if like that would be a shame if you knew you know what I'm saying <laughs> yes <laughs> It would be a shame if you knew you could get a desk job and just kind of finesse your way to just do your homework on the clock. <laughs> Bro, get paid to get brains. You got to do what you got to do. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, essentially, like, for those of y'all that are just kind of wondering, like, what's the difference between work study and non-work study? Um, there's no real difference in pay. Um, so like a work study student and a non-work study student working at the same place, like, they get paid the same. It's just about like where the funding comes from. And essentially like what work study is supposed to do is like it's federal money that gets poured into the school or like different departments um, so that they're able to provide more um, like job opportunities. So it's essentially just to like open up positions and things like that for students. And I know that there's like sometimes a cap on how much you can make in work study um, yeah. So that's just kind of the difference and things to think about. Um, but maybe like some other things to think about is also like um, on campus versus off campus um, at jobs that you can do. I know personally, I have done both. And the biggest differences that I've been able to notice are just how flexible like on campus jobs tend to be, mm-hmm. um, especially mm-hmm. like in terms of like understanding that you're a student. So I've found that the jobs that I have on campus definitely help and prioritize like my academics. So let's say like there's just one day like I just genuinely can't come in. I have a midterm the next day and I really, really, really need to study. They tend to be a little nicer about understanding (laughs) that. And I know like my other job was just kind of like, well, you should have thought about that before. (laughs) Like, oh, maybe like drop out. (laughs) 
Yeah, so it's definitely like something to think about when you're thinking about like getting a job and being a working student. Um, and in terms of looking for these jobs to begin with, I know some um, some schools have like these partnerships, like with these bigger servers or whatever. Like, for example, I know the UC or I don't know if it's all UCs. Um, I know mine for sure. Um, we have something called Handshake where it can connect you to both on and off campus jobs and like you can apply directly through there or it'll send you to like their website to apply there. A lot of the times like it's kind of like it's almost like LinkedIn where you have like your experience, your resume, like your profile and things like that. And then you can just directly apply to jobs. Um, but I don't know. Do you guys have a handshake kind of deal yeah, we use at that. your school? Yeah, we use handshake as well. I have, like, for on-campus jobs, like, Bowdoin has their own, like, like job finder server thing. Um, but I know I know it's, like, a little bit harder to find off-campus jobs. Again, just location-wise, <laughs> suburban Maine, you know, <laughs> there's definitely less traffic, foot traffic. Um, but I know, like, a lot of students do have, like, there's, like, a couple of local coffee shops that students tend to, like, maybe end up working at. So, again, like finding those kinds of places that you like yeah yeah I think it's mostly just about like connecting to like maybe your career center or like different resource centers on campus that can kind of guide you in the right direction um but essentially like work applications could really vary right like we've mentioned before there's very informal processes and there's very formal like fill out this application have an interview kind of thing like yeah. I think it just really depends. Again, it comes down to like who you know and how you get there and things like that. Um, but essentially, like when you're working, just be strategic and find that balance that works out for you. Because I know at the end of the day, like money's money and you might need some money. Right. And I know like some people need to work, whether that's to fund their education or to fund housing and to be able to live close to campus mm -hmm. or even on campus. Right. And I think that's another very like very difficult application to kind of navigate especially mm -hmm. if you've never had experience in like yeah. looking for housing I remember like trying to figure out my first housing application and I was just like oh my god what is can I get a <laughs> I know can I, I get thinking. a credit score <laughs> they were like co-signer I was like so <laughs> I signed twice or what <laughs> right and left hand or like right <laughs> But yeah, I think like the housing application is another one that no one really talks about. I mean, I lived at a dorm my first year. So that housing application was kind of take care taken care of, right? Like it wasn't too difficult to like navigate. Um, but I think maybe, you know, if on campus housing is a little too expensive, that's when you got to think about like those next few years that you'll be at school is thinking about like university affiliated housing versus independent housing. Um, and essentially what that means is like the university owned ones. So like schools often have like on campus and off campus housing opportunities that are through the school. And then the independent ones are just like the local ones that are in the area that have nothing to do with the school. Um, but 
you know, when we're thinking about those things, it's like the perks of maybe living on campus. Maria, you know the perks about living on campus. <laughs> oh, I know the perks about living on campus. I think, again, as Jazz, Jazz likes to point out, I'm a little spoiled. Yes, <laughs> I get it. The private school life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've lived on campus and in like university affiliated camp, like housing um, all four years. Oh, well, I guess like, I don't know if you can count this a fourth year, but I'm living at home right now. Oh. I don't think this is university affiliated. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I've lived like in a dorm, like Bowdoin first years are like required to live on campus. So you have to live in a dorm. And like that application was basically that like, you feel like a survey of like, they're trying to match you with your roommates, you know, scary stuff, which we can talk about. <laughs> Um, and then I think like then sophomore year, again, I chose like to live in like in a house in a community house. But again, it was like through the school. So it was a little bit different. I had like very different experiences because, again, like university affiliated housing encompasses like dorm life, living in a house or like what I lived in my third year, which was like in a, like a little apartment style um, living arrangement. So I had like my own kitchen and stuff so I could cook my own meals if I wanted to. But again, I had like a full <laughs> well I want a full scholarship so like obviously I'm gonna take of advantage course, yeah. of what I get for free you know oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and bonus food is great so I took advantage of those 19 meals a week Ooh, thank you very much getting good uh, or whatever <laughs> <laughs> not like I'm complaining <laughs> but yeah what about you Louise I know you've mentioned like a little bit of scary scammer stories having yes. to do with There's a lot of scammers in Berkeley. Um, and anywhere you go, I think there'll be people like that. But uh, one of the things that you can do to try to uh, mitigate that and have one less thing to worry about is to ask upperclassmen or students who are from the area um, who might know uh, which sort of apartment companies are more trustworthy, uh, which ones to avoid, and also how to sort of detect these scams and, and not fall into, or basically not get scammed. Um, because I would agree with Jazz that it's it's definitely difficult trying to navigate that, especially when it's your first time uh, signing your first lease and trying to put together all the documents, uh, trying to find co-signers and looking through insurance stuff and all that thing. So uh, there's definitely resources to help you. So you just have to uh, kind of be proactive about it. Yeah, that's definitely like a really good tip. I lived through like independent housing um, my second through fourth. Well, I guess like Maria, I guess my, my fourth year doesn't really count. But it's just independent my... housing. <laughs> this is called my mom's house. I'm, I'm definitely not independent. So. <laughs> yeah, like my second and my third year, it was it was really difficult to find housing. Um especially if you put it off for too long, at least for me, like the first week of my second year, I like did not have anywhere to live. So I was actually living with a friend because housing was so complicated. It was so hard to look for. It was so hard to avoid scams, right? Like, and, you know, I guess something that I didn't do was kind of like what Luis just mentioned is like making friends with people who are older and kind of leaving those empty spots or even just going to people on campus. Like, I know that, you know, they have their university affiliated um, apartments and things like that, but I personally could not afford that. So I really wish I would have gone and talked to people on campus because a lot of the times, even though 
they don't own like the mm-hmm. independent housing and stuff they know about it and they know which ones are like mm-hmm. less shady and which ones are a little bit more reliable because at least at UCR we have um, non-affiliated like non-university affiliated housing but that houses almost like mm. 90% students so we have like these different apartment complexes that are like they're kind of for students but like it's not owned by the university right. so maybe that's like something else that you know y'all could keep an eye out for because you really want to avoid those scams you want to avoid like not having anywhere to live for a week you know <laughs> um, but that that's definitely like something to think about and like another thing too is just like thinking about who you're gonna live with it's really important to like really strongly consider <laughs> if your friendships are strong <laughs> enough to live together <laughs> to endure the roommate life <laughs> yeah like you know you could be like really tight homies but maybe have really different living styles so you know when you're filling out that application of like finding a roommate be a hundred percent honest like yeah it's gonna ask are you clean and everyone wants to say yes (laughs) but if you are not clean you are not clean like (laughs) no shade don't don't lie on those applications because if not like you'll get placed with someone that you probably will never want to see again after (laughs) but you know that's it's it's tough I mean you gotta you just there's a lot of things to think about and aside from just like the scams and the roommates and all of that like you also got to think about like bills and like you know just what is how do you like I can't get my mom to call for me anymore like (laughs) I gotta call myself (laughs) I know I have to call myself to pay my bills or just even like doing big girl things like buying groceries like I think that's something that I just didn't realize how expensive groceries were and Mm -hmm. I think like something that really really saved me as an undergrad was applying for CalFresh so this application process is fairly easy but it is like more like paperworky and things like that but essentially what CalFresh is is like it's money to pay for your groceries and I think like if you're a if you're a student who gets the Cal grant A or B um, you're eligible for it Um, It's just about applying and just kind of showing proof of residency, pay stubs if you have a job, um, explaining how much you pay for rent if you pay rent or how how much you pay on bills, um, showing your school financial aid package and like your ID and things like that. So it is a little bit more like more steps to that application, but it definitely is like a huge lifesaver because I know um, food security is like a really important thing. I come from like one of the UCs that has like the highest rate of food insecurity. So Mm -hmm. it's just about like using those resources that are readily available to us if you have the means to do so. And, you know, I guess along those lines is also like looking for other application processes that can help with, you know, these these funding um, scenarios. I know, especially at a time of COVID, like it's really difficult to navigate. And I know some schools have like emergency relief funds um, that maybe you'd have to apply to or it automatically gets granted based off of your financial aid and things like that. But essentially, it's just about like really using those resources and just figuring out where you can find these little these little life hacks that'll make like your (laughs) undergrad a lot easier. Right. Yeah. And it's all about asking for help, like um, with a lot of these things, like the emergency relief funds or, you know, like talking to your deans, talking to your professors, like 
if they don't know, like if you have a question and they don't know, they'll find someone that knows and your your question will be answered. You know, like that's super important when you're dealing, especially with a lot of these like more like personal kind of necessities and stuff. Like they understand, I hope <laughs> that these are like essentials, you know. So yeah. I know like the funds are always there. Like you, it is a little bit harder to find sometimes, but the funds are there. So yeah, I think it's like just all about advocating for yourself. And like, I know another way that you can really do that is like petitioning your FAFSA. I think this isn't something that I was too familiar with when I first started. But, you know, you fill out your FAFSA, what it's like due March 2nd. And then school doesn't happen until what, like, well, for me, October, because I'm I'm a quarter quarter system. (laughs) But, you know, like, your your academic year doesn't start until months after you get your financial aid package but sometimes life happens and like we encounter really extreme scenarios where our financial like stability might be threatened or our financial situation changes you can always petition your FAFSA and just be like hey like this is what's happened this is why I need more money like help me out or whatever (laughs) like obviously like it's a little more formal than that it's FAFSA you know it's hella formal but like it's all about advocating for yourself and just essentially like I think I think that's like our recurring theme here is like just really putting yourself out there and figuring out like what you want to do how to get involved and how to make these things work in your favor right like yeah I think that's kind of like what it's all about it's just figuring out what you can get out of it and how it's going to help you grow both personally academically professionally all those lead kind of terms, you know? <laughs> yeah. And with applications, it's always like, you know, let them tell you no. You know, like, you should apply for everything you feel like you're qualified for. And then if, like, you know, with anything, you know, have the other person turn your application down. But, you know, don't, like what Jasmine said earlier, don't be discouraged. Like, some applications might be a lot easier than you think. So, they might like word them really weirdly and fancily so you get scared but you know ask <laughs> yeah definitely ask for help and that's what we're here for right is we're here to kind of be that guide that older sibling that's telling you all the ins and outs about you know these processes that no one really talks about and I guess with that you know we just kind of want to add like please reach out to us let us know how we could best support y'all and remember that there's a survey in our bio that you can click and let us know how we could best help you how we can kind of cater our episodes to kind of guide you in the right direction and make sure that we're here to support you yeah if you have any questions or like want to hear more in depth about anything that we talked today about you know let us know and we'll be happy to have more content out for you all we love hearing from our from you all (laughs) And without further ado, before we end today's episode, we would like to end our episode with the little segment that we like to call, It Would Be a Shame If You Knew. Do any of y'all have an It Would Be a Shame Uh, If You Knew kind of tip? I guess I have one. uh, And it would be to not give up seeking these opportunities because there isn't just one way in through the door. Um, Yeah, you can submit applications and, and resumes and all of that, but they might not work out for several uh reasons and you 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 can't give up uh if if you don't um if it doesn't work out the first time and so uh one example that i can give is my freshman year i applied to a bunch of different uh summer research programs 
and I was rejected by every single one of them. It was it was pretty tough. I I had a lot of feelings of of self doubt, and I was wondering whether um, it was even worth it to try to pursue uh, uh, further experience because I felt like a lot of them were asking for prior research experience. But how could I get any prior experience if if you won't give me a chance? Um, so it was it was that kind of uh, a mix between um, feeling bummed out and also frustrated. And so what I did was uh, I tried to, to ask for help from one of my graduate student instructors in one of my biology classes. And I asked them, you know, for some tips and, and for help to, you know, figure out how can I, how did you get started uh, in research? How can I uh, try to get some experience without having any prior experience? And so um, long story short, that's how I got my first internship uh, that same summer. It was with with that uh, grad student instructor. I, I worked on a project with him over the summer, and eventually turned into a work study position. But from that, um, I would like to highlight that you can also get into these opportunities in a more informal way. Um, I still had to do like a, a formal interview and get a certain grade in the class in order to 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 work with him on that on on that project. But um, You'd be surprised how common this actually is for people to uh, get opportunities um, through just uh, networking with professors or, or graduate students or uh, like friends um, and that kind of thing. So get to know your professors and, and instructors um, because you never know when they might know of a, an opportunity and could point you in that direction. Um, so definitely keep that in mind. Yes. Oh, it snaps to that. I think Luis said it very, very well. I think, I mean, both of my research experiences have just been from asking a professor or a professor, like, telling me, like, hey, like, I actually have this project that you might want to work at. <laughs> like, are you interested? <laughs> so I think it's definitely, like, building your relationships with your professors because they are going to be, like, your biggest advocates for um, a lot of your academic endeavors. So, yeah. yeah like, and your TAs. Yes, for sure. Go to office hours. Yeah, well, thank you all for listening. And here's Maria's little jingle. Bye, Bye, everyone.